Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who's definitely used a Golden Globe as a weapon. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and that is how I fight off all of my apparitional suitors. <laughs> yes. Because uh, I keep all four of mine sitting at the top of my bed. Uh, at the top of your guest bedroom. Yes, the guest bedroom. It's it's how you it's how you not it's how you not appear too arrogant. Yeah, is having them. I also read in a recently. Different room. I also read recently that the physical statuettes for most of those awards have to be rented yearly. So you have to. You have is to, that not a gold? What is that? I thought that was a gold. gold. I think it's an gold Emmy. Gold. What is that? I think it's an Emmy. Yeah, you're right. It's an yeah. Emmy. You're right. It's okay. Uh, she makes reference. Yeah, to the Golden Globe is much stupider looking, frankly. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. The Golden Globe is just a fucking looks like a tennis ball on a stick. Yeah, it's a Golden Globe. Right. What did you expect it to look like? A good thing? I don't know. I mean, the Emmy doesn't fundamentally make any sense. Yeah, but the Oscar looks like, like an Oscar. It... The Golden Globe looks like a Golden Globe. <laughs> it's, it's, it looks like the, the platonic ideal of an Oscar. Yeah. That's what all Oscars look like. Except right. for the Grouch, of course. Just, just just meet dudes on the street named Oscar and they yeah. just look like that. They're all That's small golden, golden men. Gold, golden men who can't move their arms and legs. Nope, not at all. I was I was a little bit hoping, and what I was going to suggest was, uh, and with me as always is a man who is dating Keanu Reeves just off screen. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought about that too. <laughs> I thought like he, uh, it's kind of like the the Nathan uh, Fielder thing, where it's like uh, all, yes, yes. all my friends are laughing with me just off screen. Yes, I, 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 dude, I will tell you this: I did not know which one I was going to do until the words came out of my mouth. I'm happy with the choice you made. Like I literally was like. I was like they were juxtaposed tra- like transient states like the waveform hadn't collapsed yet <laughs> until the word until my mouth opened Excellent. I was like I don't know which one's gonna I'm gonna say I just have no idea Pat, before we get into our movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you help keep us going and access to some bonus content. Ooh, bonus content. Yeah, we do a non-Criterion film over there every month. Uh, Supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch from a list I put together. Uh, Sometimes I pick a movie that's eventually added into the Criterion collection because that's how good I am at my job. Yep, you're becoming more and more prescient. I'm so prescient. No, that's only happened twice so far. One with Failsafe years ago and much more recently with Del Toro's Pinocchio, which was announced probably within like two weeks of us putting putting the episode out. To be fair, that's the one that made you prescient. The the, the fucking Failsafe is like... Frankly, that movie doesn't deserve to be in the Criterion Collection. It really doesn't. Not that that, not that that phrase means anything, but it's not. It's just not a good, not that good yeah. of a movie. Um, on the other hand, obviously, Del Toro's Pinocchio is amazing. It's very good. It's very good. Uh, Failsafe, we've always maintained, should be a bonus episode on the Doctor Strange Love or a bonus Absolutely. movie on the 100%. Doctor Strange Love release, but not its 100%. own its own dedicated thing. Um, or a box set with the pair of them, I guess, if you want it. Uh 
but yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm not even sure it supports its own disc, frankly. Yeah, right, but. right. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, anyway, Ultra Math House has a good turn in it. Other than that, it's the more boring version of that story, certainly. Yeah. Uh, you One can see why one might not make this just straightforward version of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the answer is because Walter Matthau doing a pretty straightforward Kissinger is it's, it just makes you think about Kissinger, and that's bad. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah, exactly. It's like, which like is its own thing, but probably wasn't its own thing necessarily. When it came when out, it came might out. not have been yeah. as bad. I guess that's fair. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, just from like, I, I don't know where we were on Kissinger Dialogue when that movie came out. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, anyway, if you want to hear more about that, you can head over to our Patreon and uh, pay a dollar and get access to the back catalog, too, and go back and listen to that uh, You episode. can do that. That is a thing you can do. It's a do. thing you're allowed to do. Uh, we are so grateful to all of our uh, supporters over there. Uh, and we got a good chunk of $1 supporters who are really paying our bills and really love it uh but we do have a couple tiers higher too at five dollars you get thanked on air and thank you so much to our five dollar supporters uh andrew jarrett eric cordonado stephen goldmeyer and chris otto yes thank you a bit above that for folks who can afford it want something kind of special pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently i get that printed up on a postcard and mail it off to our $10 and above supporters with a little personalized thank you note every month. We also like to thank them on Earth. So thank you so much to Patrick Yako, Tracy McGrath, Nina Bojnak, Jason Westhaver, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters. Yes, thank you very much. If you want to see those postcards without committing that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. Our store will come up with the past postcards. You can buy them as postcards. It's greeting cards. If you need a little more room to write a longer note to your grandma, uh, as buttons, uh, as stickers, and one as a T-shirt, and maybe some other things. Who goes? Yeah, we should make some more T-shirts, frankly. Probably. Uh, I like T-shirts. I don't know if anybody would ever buy them, but I like them nonetheless. Yeah. We've sold a couple of the... We've sold at least one of the T-shirts. Thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything off that Redbubble. Again, thank you so much to everybody who supported us on Patreon over the years. And thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. That sounded weird, but yes, thank you. Yeah, it sounded really patronizing. Back. I don't know why. I don't know why it came out that way. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's. Yeah, I love. We love doing it. It's it's really fun making the postcards. Is a really really fun experience. So Pat, this yes. week our movie is our first Todd Solon's film. I think it's our last Todd Solon's film too. I uh, yeah, I mean it is currently um, our only possible. Todd Solon's film. <laughs> uh, Life during wartime. Uh, from 2010? Uh-huh. Yeah. Dolan. That's a movie. <laughs> movie. It is Mo- a movie. It, it, we, wa- we watched it. <laughs> we did. We did. Uh, it, did it, it did, in fact, exist. Yeah. Solens has... Uh, has uh, <laughs> he's a, oh, I don't know where this sentence is going. He I'm writes so a lot interested. of very dark things. Um, I've never seen another Solens film. This is the only one I've ever I have watched. only heard of. Wow. I've never actually seen any, yes. but uh, I know of I know most the plot of, his of the other ones. Yeah. yeah. Um Welcome to the Dollhouse, Happiness, um I've heard of Palindromes, I've heard of uh his most recent one, Wiener Dog from 2016. I uh I feel like I saw a trailer for in front of something else. Um A weird thing about Solon's films is that they all 
most of them sort of take place in the same universe. Yeah, and, he has his own cinematic universe. Um, uh, and Palindromes and Wiener Dog are both spinoffs of Welcome to the Dollhouse, but are also apparently uh, mutually exclusive. <laughs> like, Palindromes. Oh, interesting. Palindromes and Wiener Dog don't take place in the same universe, but they are both sequels to Welcome to the Dollhouse. <laughs> They're different continuities. Um, oh, okay, so we have a timeline split. Yeah. So what they need to have is like one of those big timeline shattering events where they like <laughs> right, smash right. back together at some yeah. point. We gotcha. need the we need uh we need a crisis uh to pull to yeah, pull the Solensverse. Infinite Solens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotta pull the Solensverse back together. Oh yeah, I mean heck, yeah you do. Uh, uh anyway. Um <laughs> can't have this fractured universe stuff. That's not that's not that's no good. Yeah. Uh, also, he's got Dark Horse and Storytelling, which I haven't heard of uh, prior to talk in the bonus features about storytelling. Um, and Dark Horse comes out after this, so didn't know that one. Um, don't remember it coming out. Of course, in 2011, wanted to have been paying attention to places where I would have heard about a Todd Solon's movie. <laughs> so, right, um, right, right. Or the new one, at least. Uh, but yeah. Life During Wartime is what we're talking about this week. And like I said, it's our only Solons in the collection. Uh, so it's the only time we ever have to talk about a Todd Solons film. Uh, unless, well, until they add like three more add, at some point in the yeah, future. Unless, you know. unless they do the box set later on. Um, it's it, There's a real possibility that that could happen. It's, it's worth noting that that's not like an impossibility. Right, right. We'll get uh, off this episode and then it'll be like, Oh, I just read the just almost immediately. Added, like, yeah, within, within days. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's the way it works. Yeah. Um, Life During Wartime is a semi-direct sequel to Happiness. Uh, Happiness is about the same three sisters. Right. And their mom. Right. Uh, they are all played by different people in Happiness. Um. And uh, Solon's justifies them being played by other people, uh, not just to give people the chance to uh, different, you know, new new actors a chance to have a turn at the character, um, but also uh, arguing that at different points in their lives people are different enough to be played by different actors. The characters change. People I change mean, yeah, who they I don't, are. I don't necessarily have a, a problem with that on yeah. a fundamental level. I, I find I, I, I that that part is like maybe sort of the... It's, it's interesting because that's the sort of thing that I can imagine. Like, luckily, I think with something like Todd Solon's, like, that's the sort of thing that the sort of person who would watch a Todd Solon's film is also not going to be too worried about you know what I mean? Like, I don't know where this this phrase, this like thought, line of thought is. But like, that's the sort of thing that makes like a fucking like MCU fan lose their mind. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sort of person that goes to see Todd Solon's films is probably like, fine, whatever, I don't fucking care. Yeah, uh, certainly caring less about it, I'm sure. Or yeah, uh, I mean, maybe appreciative of the artistic, uh, right? Of like sort of doing of something yeah. different, right? Yeah. Uh, which and so I don't really have like fundamentally any problem with that. I think it's kind of a neat idea. Um. I I think he doesn't he doesn't legitimately need to 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 justify it frankly you know what right. I mean? it's it's whatever right um, but um, yeah it's 
it would be it would have been interesting to have seen happiness first again not because you like i agree fundamentally with what he says in his little interview thing that we got here like it, this is a standalone film it doesn't need to have uh this other film but you get that like you can compare the performance you can like you know what i mean like that's still a neat idea to do, be able to do is be like okay well i watched the first one how do the performances in the first one compare not not in like a oh this one's better than that one or something sort of uh way just but in like kind of a this would be neat to do sort of way yeah uh, but i'm never gonna go watch that movie <laughs> like that's there's i i can tell you the percent chance that that will happen it, it is zero unless you somehow lose your fucking mind and put it on a a, a bonus list well maybe i I'm should do a todd solens bonus list you you would just because you secretly want to make me watch things i don't want to watch um i don't think i would hate it i think i would probably find it about the way i found this movie which i guess at some point we'll have to to lay out there but my honest like feeling about the movie after having watched it was okay <laughs> like well I, think... I don't know like i feel like the movie wants more from me than i'm giving it in yeah. in the sense that like i feel like somehow like this feels like it feels like the movie's trying and someone's in general is trying to be transgressive or something to that effect right like okay because he does talk about, like, I don't think, and, but I think he's doing it in a pretty mild-mannered way that is just, no, I'm, I don't, I don't care. I mean, like, I don't hate it, but I also don't care. Yeah. I can see that. I can, I can see where you're coming from there. I think that this movie's exploration of uh, forgiveness and evil um, right, is, yeah, can be interesting, uh, and is particularly I think, interesting. I think the word you're looking for is could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it is particularly interesting in a movie in 2010 called Life During Wartime, uh, where we have allusions to the after effects of 9/11. Uh, right, I, but I think my problem with that is I feel like Todd Solon himself, to a certain extent, undermines. And mind you, we can we can do death of the author in favor of the author. Yeah, we don't have yeah. to just use it and like say like yes, I agree. In general, the movie, but it, it but the problem is is it, they're glancing blows to me. Like that's my problem. Yeah, is this movie feels at most at any point the best it gives you is illusions and and like yeah glances off of ideas that need really deep and intense exploration, like. The idea, like, you know, we, we, we have a child here. He's used as sort of from the mouth of babes sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Of, like, could you know, forget who can be forgiven, what can be forgotten. Yeah. Um, and, like, it's not even remotely radical enough to satisfy what I would want. Oh, of course not. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And I know that we, you and I operate on extremely high standards of that stuff, so I understand that. Right. But, like, but but I think... If you're trying to make what essentially amounts to a transgressive point about like giving you know giving forgiveness to people who society has deemed to be unforgivable um then you have you can't just 
fucking like wave your hand vaguely at that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because at that point, to me, you feels like at that point you've crossed into the realm of doing a disservice rather than than doing anything yeah. beneficial. Because you're not really taking us, you're not taking a stand. You're not adamantly proposing sort of radical forgiveness or something like that. Right. Um, where I think this movie is interesting, where his other movies may not have caught me, is that nine eleven part. Uh, right, but like even right, and I, yes, exactly. But like seen, that's kind yeah. of my problem is that right. like that needs to be. That you need to, if you're going to do things about 9/11, you have to, a certain extent, be radical. Yeah, it seems like throughout his movies, from what I've gathered uh, in watching this one and the material associated with this one, uh, that Solon views child molestation as an ultimate evil, and and it is. Solon has apparently said, and this is this is alluded to in uh, uh, David Starrett's essay for the Criterion release. Uh, Solon has apparently said that he believes that uh, the average American uh, would rather sit down and have dinner with Osama bin Laden than a child molester. Uh, and I think on an ideological level, that might be true. I think on an actual literal level, a good chunk of the average Americans do sit down and eat dinner with child molesters and they just pretend that they're not child molesters. Right. And so that's a uh, very important point is that all it has to do with like what like sort of cultural perceptions and the idea that like yeah i mean it happens constantly right like the number of people who are on the regular cover for child molesters yeah is fucking insane it's like an insane number right uh every time something like that comes out there's a lot of really intense hand rigging takes place yeah wherein basically the same things are said over and over and over again where everybody who kind who basically knew but just sort of pretended they didn't know, finds ways to sort of, yeah, you know, and relieve I, their guilt and stuff, right? I, it's it's constant, right? Institutionally, what what happens more often than not is that uh, everyone just chooses to pretend that it never happened. Or, right, 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 right. And so we get into uh, the concept of forget, right? Yeah. But but the problem is, is that like that forget happened before the thing was even revealed in many ways right, right? like right. everybody just lives in a constant state of denial where they they actively forget the thing that they know yeah right constantly right right um like so like where where i'm kind of like coming at it though is it like but then again like and, and, and the problem is is that like and like he can say that but osama bin laden and a child molester are categorically different concepts uh it's apples and oranges mm -hmm. uh you actually you don't sit down and have dinner with osama bin laden all the time but you sure as shit vote for him <laughs> and yeah. and you and you sure as shit if you got invited like let's take for example because i put somebody who's a sort of world-class sort of villain uh, sort of on the same same sort of highly, uh, like categorical level right if you got invited to have dinner with the president, mm -hmm. a majority of people would consider it an honor. You are being invited to dinner with a war criminal. I mean, have you have you seen anything about the amount of the amount of hundredth birthday parties Henry Kissinger has had publicly? This I know. Year? So that's what I'm saying. Is uh, it's fucking so yeah. like the point like it's like in reality the answer is 
yes and yes. Right, right. Now, like we will as a we as a society, if it's deemed expedient, forgive fucking anything. Right, right. Uh, yeah, if it's if it's expedient, right. Uh, the thing is that on an ideological level, uh, to to an outsider, uh, to someone who does not have the personal connection to whoever it is uh, being accused of these sorts of things. Uh, ideologically, at least, it is much harder to, uh, or much easier to say, I would never want to interact with them. They're a terrorist. Right, right, uh, right. Right, but that's, yeah, exactly. But that's, that's a, it is, yeah. in many ways, a meaningless statement. Yeah. So, to, to that extent, maybe one thing uh, this movie does very well is to humanize at least Bill. Right, uh, right, and and let us personally connect with Bill. Uh, with the other men. <laughs> well, so like I think that's the thing, right? Is that like difference? The funny thing yeah. about the movie is, is that like I don't think the movie, I, I really a hard. This movie is a hard one, not in the sense that it's like doing things that are like mind-boggling or something like that. It's a hard one to wrap your head, like, deal with in many ways because like. Yeah, like somebody like Bill, they're doing. He's he is exploring the idea of, um, you know, Bill as a human being, right? Um, and that's like a good thing to do, right? Like, too often media chooses not to do that. Uh, but yeah, as you said, like many other characters are not really given a lot of sort of human characteristics, right? Um, and admittedly, you know, for like Paul Rubin's character, uh, it, he's a ghost in the mind of... Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's a, he's not... He's actually yeah. just a hallucination, right? Like, right. we've got this sort of, like, idea of him as a ghost, but, like, we call that a hallucination. We have a right, word for right, that. Right, It's <laughs> yeah. hallucination. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, you had said that you, you had uh, a f- fairly substantial note drawn from I did. I actually took a note which is kind of against my ethos with regards to this right, podcast. Right, but right. um uh but uh, we, yeah, so we are at a point where this would be relevant because we were talking about war and stuff like that okay, and like okay. this movie's sort of rad- like radicalness or or lack thereof, right? So in the middle right smack dab in the middle. I like this was enough to like make me who I was half paying attention to the Todd Solon's interview. Yeah. Uh, I was paying attention enough that I was getting the words and they, I was processing them. But I was like, oh, this doesn't even require my eyes. So I started doing other stuff at the same time. And, and like, enough that I could, like... I was getting it, right? Like, I he he's making statements and I, I'm, I'm gathering what he's saying. But this part, like, right in the middle, like, stopped me in my tracks because somebody asked him in one of the questions about the relationship between this movie and the war. Yeah. Right. And 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 like this is something bearing in mind that we're we're now 13 years on from that point. Um and like there there's been even sort of more discussion about it in that intervening, you know, what I guess it wrapped up like troops were withdrawn when I I've it was like last like 2 years ago. Yeah, thereabouts. Right? Finally. Like officially. We're, the the last time we officially left Afghanistan was was about a year right, and a half right, ago. Right, right, right. 
But yeah. And so, um, you know, I I wrote down like so like this is this is thirteen years before. But bear in mind, it is nine years after it started, right? Like, right. Bearing in mind that for a lot of people, nine years was enough. You know, I mean, the sort of do- disillusionment had already long since set in, right? Like, and th- and he is kind of getting into that sort of. In many ways, this is a movie out of time, right? I don't know what is this movie meant to be set earlier than it is it actually was released. I assume. Oh, um, whether or not the characters exist like, in 2010 or if right, they exist I don't closer think it's to 2001, they, they're not. A- they're not acting like it's 2010. Yeah, the that, way that they that talk about fair. the war, they are acting like it's 2003, 2004. Yeah, f- first few years where where because you remember you remember right. the 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 hype cycle, man. It was fucking insane uh in the first few years uh after 9-11 right and so but bear in mind Todd Solons is being interviewed around the time of the movie's released he's he is also fully 10 years on from the right. start of the war right yeah well and around so he writes around the time of the criterion release but that is within a year or so of the movie coming out right i mean so. it's it's presumably it's even actually later yeah. <laughs> like you know what i mean like right. it's not earlier it's later um so I, he he was asked about the war, and like the movie's relationship to the war, and his answer is a bit wibbly wobbly. It's quite long. He says he talks a lot and says nothing, um, about that particular topic. Like as though he, in many ways, is not actually interested in having that right. conversation, despite the fact that he picked the question. Right. Um, but he gets to this point where he's like talking about like that, like how. To most people, the the war is very abstract. I'm, okay, so he's on the he's he's not wrong yet, right? Like he's he's fine, right? Yeah. Since it's not like we were taxed more heavily, it's not like there's a draft, and it's so very discreet. It's mm-hmm. so, okay. So again, still roughly accurate. The idea that we don't have a draft is a bit of a a sort of misguided conception conceptualization I, of the way I feel America's like his army is formed. I feel but, like where uh, this where where your critique of this is going uh yeah i mean we have a draft it's just that it's the only way poor yeah it's a poverty draft yeah exactly and so um so it's not like there's a draft and it's and it's a very discreet segment of the population that's going there okay uh that's risking their lives in a section of society that has little overlap with that a privileged class that can engage so sharply and insightfully about the philosophical or political intellectual nature of this engagement. My reading of this is that's maybe the classy, uh, cl- most classic shit I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> His essential fundamental argument is that the people who are going to the war don't overlap with a segment of people who have the ability to critique the war. Yeah. Right. Th- that as though all the people who went there were m- were not were never engaged in the critique that they right. were just it doesn't directly say what they were right but it does imply that no 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 the people and like it's pro- it's possibly you know I do believe it's coming from an innocent place right he's saying all the well-meaning liberals on TV who are critiquing the war are not the people going and fighting but right. that's a fundamentally classist conception of the way things work, right? Like, lots and lots of people who went over there. 2011 is certainly the far fuck enough fuck out in. of that thing. 
Yeah. Cri- just cr- treat the actual f- absolute fuck out of that thing. Yeah. Like half the people towards the very end, like most of the people I knew who talked about it on the regular were f- were former soldiers because they it had in- it had intensified their desire to talk about a thing that many Americans mostly had made completely background noise. Yeah. Right. Um, and just the idea that like I don't know. It's it's just I understand where that comes from, but like that's someone's I keep I can't let go and like listening to his other conversations during this, he just strikes me as the sort of a quintessential ideal of a, a well meaning liberal art person. Like, oh I'm gonna do things that are transgressive because society needs that. But like I'm never going to be radical. I'm never going to like really truly do anything that fucking like makes people like deep. He's like, I'm on the blacklist for every major company. It's like, okay, because you have pedophilia in your movie, whatever. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's hyper transgressive, I guess. But like, you're not like, (laughs) like that's you, you, you got on that list by via technicality essentially like you didn't like fucking like attack those corporations they just don't want to be associated with pedophilia right like you aren't on the blacklist pedophilia is on the blacklist right 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 like i don't know i'm just like i'm deeply frankly deeply annoyed by the man yeah <clears throat> and that statement just i, I was I was mildly disinterested prior to the statement. Post the statement, I'm like, I'm just generally annoyed by this person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> if your annoyance caused you to black out, uh, it did so at a perfect time because what he follows that up with is uh, reminiscing about how people came together post 9 yes, 11. I'm sorry. I did not put that in my memo because my memo yeah. filled up all my paper. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember that happening. I did not black out through that. I had, I was already curling my lips in disgust. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I and I I couldn't do it any more than I already was. But yes, he very much had a, a New Yorkers came together post 9/11 like yeah. kumbaya style uh, and all rallied around America's uh, mayor. Uh, it's just like he, what he says about Giuliani <sighs> is sort of interesting though because he approaches Giuliani as sort of grotesquery. That's true. Uh, in in mentioning that Giuliani's response to questions of what what do we let's do go now was go shopping was go shopping yeah was go shopping and let's get and, back and to like, normal consumerism we'll s- is is something that well so that's, Todd is that's what critiquing getting, right right and so that's where I'm running into the problem like that's where Todd Zolens is actually just annoying me yeah one can see that this person is in, is a smart person who could. Given a different sort of line of reasoning, be yeah. much more radical. Yeah, uh, but then he goes on. I don't from, know what he's like now. Maybe yeah. he is more maybe radical. He is, maybe he is. I don't know. He uh, he goes on from that sentiment about Giuliani uh, to talk about uh, people's good, people's best intentions ending in bad things. But the only thing he actually names is invading Iraq. As if, as if the process as of if invading that was Iraq was a best intention. Yeah. 
Which it's, well, I mean, like that's but that, but honestly, that's some well-meaning liberal bullshit, right? It, it, that's fair. Yeah. It's just sort of assumption that America did it because we just had to free those poor Iraqi people. Right, right, right. Like right. that. That's why those things happen. Is such a like liberal liberal TV dude thing to think. Like that's some like CNN bullshit. Um, and like, I I don't know. Man, it gives me a headache. <laughs> like I don't know. Like. It's like you're you're too smart for, to think these things for real. Stop it. Is like my my feeling. I I don't know. It's shit like this. Just like I just oh, that that section of that thing is just so like. It's unnerving in the way that like, oh yeah, there are people whose brains work this way that think these things, and like think that they're right about the way the world is yeah it's like oh boy (laughs) yeah that's fair uh yeah so it is life during wartime and if apparently a working title of this was just forgiveness um but he changes that title right and we get the overt References to 9-11, an equation of child molesters with terrorists explicitly, um, but also talk right. about Al-Qaeda directly and uh, and dealing there with the sloppiest Mark saying, you know, after, after he gives every so often, piping up with something that sounds philosophical but isn't very smart, uh, he also tells Timmy... <laughs> That uh, South Florida would be a gold mine if I were Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, play, yeah, yeah. Playing with that, you know, that very real. Well, again, I, I a mean, few years a earlier fun, than right. That is than a 2010. Fun, like, that's the thing is Todd Solons is like occasionally like dipping into really actually like fun sorts of like making fun of the way America reacted to much of this, right? Like, yeah. You remember that, like, the water treatment plant in Mansfield had a police car parked outside of it for a fucking decade. Every... They just cold parked a a police car there and left it as, like, their deterrence to Al-Qaeda, like, blowing up our water treatment plant. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking insane shit. That's the one... I I know that, like, that's just the one for me because it's, like, it was there just for so yeah. fucking long. Everyone everywhere, but yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I know it happened in every community in America. I understand that. but And everybody has their their Mansfield water treatment plant yep. uh, police car. Like, I, everybody does. I understand that. But, like, that's the thing is everybody has one, right? So you talk about yours and somebody else talks about theirs, and you all get to compare the dumbass shit your town did in response to, to 9-11. There was... There was uh, Convinced they were going to blow up your fucking water treatment plant. Fucking some Mansfield. some reason that at least a town within the blast radius to you would uh would be on the list is right. Yeah, you know. and, and it was like it was almost a game that towns were playing. Like we need to prove we're important by proving that Al Qaeda will absolutely blow up our <laughs> yes, town. yes, yes. Like it's like it was like it became a sort of like dick measuring contest, and it. In the weirdest way possible, humanly yeah. possible, just absolutely batshit insane stuff. I, oh man, it, like yeah, just American responses to yeah. that is just 
Yeah, exactly. Now, now I will say within the context of this movie, uh, we are telling a particularly Jewish story. Uh, and the idea of South Florida particularly being a gold mine, in this man's words, uh, a Jewish character saying this, is a particularly Jewish fear of Islamic terrorism attacking right, Jewish right. populations, right? Um, so there is that, but still, uh, everybody thought everywhere was a target. Yeah, everybody thought. Every, yeah, I mean, and like, yeah, it, there. It's understand why that like you get into this sort of problem with this sort of stuff where it's like, well, yes, that is a a particular fear, but it's also a fear that literally every town, you know, what I mean, right. every town also had. Like, it's, it's also sort of, it gets a little bit complicated. Ali Sheedy's character, the Hollywood sister, is. Um, is also from this Jewish family and is someone who has a background character, not overtly commented upon, but seen a uh, an empathy for Palestinian refugees. Right. We see behind her as she gives a speech about how she can, <laughs> she's not in herself a good position to give advice or help to Joy. Helen has a poster uh, a print on her wall of a Palestinian child standing in front of an Israeli tank throwing a uh, throwing a rock. Um, in the actor interviews that are a bonus feature on our disc, it is revealed that uh, Helen has a forearm tattoo that says Jihad in Arabic. Those are aspects of her character I would have loved to explore in this post-9-11 right, world. Right, and then uh, just... Aren't that we just don't? <laughs> she, I, for one, would have liked more exploration of the character trait of liking spoon. <laughs> personally, but no. Bill for, for the older brother. Billy likes a lot of bands. Uh, yes, spoon is just one of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but spoon. It's it's it is a poster. Yeah, on the wall. I know there are a lot of posters on the wall, but right. that was the only one I cared about, as one might imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, whoever Sorry, set... Not whoever, to distract from, like, serious right. talk. Yeah, whoever set dress Bill, uh, Billy's room... Uh, Did a great job. <laughs> really really captured that 2010 indie, uh, indie uh, kid. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, like, we've got Che Guevara posters. Yeah. We've got Bob Marley posters. We've got Spoon. Yeah. We've, uh, got, we've got everything we need. A Neutral Milk Hotel uh, poster yep. right beside so the Spoon one. Too, yeah. uh, I, I can't remember what, what's in his dorm room. Uh, see, I feel like I don't remember either because the dorm room seemed so much more nondescript. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's on purpose, right? I think that, like, that's the interesting... We, we just sort of keep coming back to this thing where, like, he... Solons does some interesting stuff that I do admire, like, you know, things like playing around with, like, okay, what... You know, this kid goes off to college after all his sort of traumatic experiences and, like doesn't sort of have necessarily the wherewithal to like do take, all that sort of take ownership of that place and stuff or take anything that reminds him of home right exactly like all the stuff that like i would have packed into a box yeah is just sitting at home on the walls basically untouched yeah like they talk about bill as though he died but in many ways it seems like uh Oh, now I've just forgotten the name of the fucking uh, character. Billy is the, who the oldest boy. Billy. Yeah. That's confusing. Right. Um, but For me. 
Yeah. Uh, so Billy, it's but in many ways, Billy's room looks like Billy died. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's what families do when one of their children passes away early and like surprisingly. Right. Just and they don't sort touch of memorialize anything. the room. They don't touch anything. The room's identical. Nobody's gone in there. It's very clear. It looks. It has the feel of a place that somebody just walked away from one day and just never came back. Right. And I don't know. He went to school literally in the opposite corner of the country. So right. he did and, kind and, of. And, right. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I and so I think in many ways, right, someone does have a pretty good grasp on sort of like human behavior and stuff in many ways. He just he uses his powers for not evil, but maybe like <laughs> neutral. He's like the neutral, the neutral world in Futurama or something. Yeah. Um, it's like you're not, you're you clearly you, you could be so much more than this. Well, uh, oh well. From what I know of the other Solon's movies, they have yeah, they pretty consistently have darker endings than anything we get in this one. Okay. Um, at least all our. I mean, yeah. I mean, that might help. Yeah. Uh, darker doesn't necessarily mean better. No, uh, no. I, in I, this I, world. <laughs> yeah, but but lighter doesn't necessarily need, mean better either. Uh, no, so. no, no. Yeah, I mean, you can make a darker version of this movie that like yeah. still has the same fundamental none, core problems. None of these movies end with uh, suicide or mass death. Uh, or none of the none of these character stories end in suicide or mass death. So, right. Uh, well, with the exception of Michael Michael K. Williams, Allen does apparently commit suicide off screen at some point, right? Uh, or at least Joy imagines that he has. Yeah, and also enjoy, enjoy being such a hyper unreliable narrator. Um, yeah, could go either don't, way. Don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, like and like that's an interesting thing. I mean, I I'm always. I I I think I'm on record as generally being a fan of unreliable narrators yeah. uh, as a as a concept. Sometimes. I think usually I think most of the time unless someone, unless a an, a director is is in my opinion using it to cheat. Yeah. Um to to try I to make that. something profound that just isn't fundamentally profound by just making it so the audience just doesn't know what's going on. That's not the same thing. Like because because we get it very firmly established from very early on joys uh, like and we kind of get to deal with the fact that like we find out like we get that something's wrong but we find out about joy over time and how unreliable she is right i find her a neat character to watch evolve like i yeah. find it really interesting to see and like kind of learn things about her in many ways she's one of the for me at least one of the more interesting characters in the in the movie um because I just I find I I don't but I think in many ways to a certain extent one of the things the movie for me at least suffers from is the fact that um, we essentially have three main characters right um, yeah and I get why one would do that but flip side of that is it's we don't ever get to maybe for me learn as much about any of them as I would like to does that make sense yeah. We don't. We don't spend quite ever. I, I, I think all. Th well, the the older sister is the one we don't actually learn about. She's not really a main character. Um, 
the you, you know she might be the youngest. I I don't actually know which which end know, of the, the, the spectrum actor, Helen the is actor on, sister, but, but yeah, Helen the, nonetheless, the actor yeah. sister, yes, is yeah. we don't really. She's not really a main character. We don't really get to know her. She's only sort of seen through the eyes of Joy in many ways. Um, but I I don't know. I, I, I just think that they could all support a longer amount of time learning about them specifically. Um, yeah. And, I, and it's, you know, there's obviously there's limits on how much you can fit in a movie. But on the flip side of that is it's like, yeah. But you could also have just picked one of these people to like spend more time with. Two is an option that was available, and you know this is fine. But like, I, especially like I said, I think Joy is really, really interesting and could support an entire movie just about her. And you know, maybe, maybe if we saw happiness, we would see enough of the other sisters to uh... right. That's yeah. That's the other thing, right? Is that like, yeah, technically you don't need to see the other one, but like you know perhaps the two together presents a more fleshed out version of this world. I mean, it certainly seems like this is a solidly a standalone silly story. Yeah. The uh, story, certainly. I, I'm yeah. just wondering if you like would feel gratified to like know more about the characters. And again, that we're also being, you know, we are also presented with the idea that like, well, yeah, but each character is also essentially being played differently by different people so that doesn't necessarily mean that like in that scenario it doesn't necessarily point to the idea that like oh that would even help right like you you know they might be being played so differently that you you're kind of like not really the two don't really interconnect i don't know yeah it's interesting that uh when asked uh during that fan q a if seeing happiness uh, should be a prerequisite. Uh, Solon says pretty explicitly that it, it's advantageous not to have seen happiness. Well, he kind of he kind of hems and hauls. He oscillates right? he, like, a little he, bit. He, yeah, he, it's true. He, he he kind of both sides it a little bit. Uh, you know, he says like, well, you know, he makes the argument that yes, you would get to see how the characters are played differently by different people, which is interesting. But on the flip side, you might make this movie going experience worse for yourself. Uh, so I, you know, it, he really sort of, um, yeah, he kind of, I don't, I'm not sure he knows, yeah. honestly speaking. Um, I like the dreamier bits of this movie. Some of them active dreams. Uh, some of them active hallucinations. Some of them just dreamy things happening. Uh, for instance, after Bill gets out of prison and he's on the bus and he falls asleep against the window and we have the first encounter with his vision of the park scene and at first a blurred child uh, who when he sees he wakes up. Um, but the first time we're introduced to that, it's not clear that this wasn't a transition to him having arrived at wherever he was going. Right. Uh so he's on the bus, and it's dreary outside, and then he has this idyllic park scene, and then very abrupt back to him asleep on the bus, waking up on the bus again. Right. right. Uh, Joy's sleepwalky excursion through suburbia uh, is beautiful. 
and interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, walking across the uh, the uh, golf course, um, that sky apparently digitally added later, also according to the cinematographer. Okay. Um, which is why the moon is always full because all of the sky shots were added in our, post production. Yeah. Um, but also adds to a sort of poetic realism in the movie uh, to always have the moon be full over the course of however long the story is supposed to have taken place. Right. Uh, but yeah, and then her her entire interaction with the host at the restaurant is so delightfully weird, I feel like. Yeah, the I I do love the like I yeah. love the whole setup for that because it is you're right it is so fucking, fucking yeah. insane how the host it's is like just yeah. point by point going through a corporate script as a host is right like checking the like the the reservations and stuff for yes. a clearly extremely <laughs> yes. empty room yes. yes I do love it yeah it was very funny um yeah and then she. Uh, Joy is sort of just out of pace. Uh, the camera's moving slow, and she's moving slow as if she's sleepwalking, even as this host is still in her uh, paycheck-required perkiness. Um, and then she snaps out of it, snaps out of the malaise uh, to start hallucinating <laughs> Pee Wee Herman. So... Right. Well, not Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens is yes his character. Paul but Rubens yeah. is not Pee Wee Herman, but right. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and that's a that's that that is also a very interesting performance, right? Because I don't we've that one seems much more than a lot of the other ones dependent on happiness as a sort of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, it's not that not that Paul Rubens doesn't establish the character in the movie; he absolutely does. It's just it's a fascinating one because it's entirely Joy's conception, it, it being hallucination, right? And entirely Joy's conception of that person, which is a really sort of fascinating thing, sort of in and of itself, right? Like he, he is, his character is what Joy imagines he was, right? Which is not a thing is an interesting thing to think about in terms of like, um, you know in in a story like having characters that are entirely essentially at the whim of the conception of another character uh, is neat it's just a neat idea it plays really interesting because it get those wild mood swings i don't know if that's what his character was like in happiness but it certainly is the way that joy understands him right which is which is interesting if that's just an to me that's just an interesting idea Yeah, and it it might be interesting to see happiness just to see exactly what is going on with uh not just with Andy, but also with Alan. Right. Uh Andy, Paul Rubin's character, is uh played by John Lovitz in Happiness. Alan, Michael K. Williams character, is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, right. But then the last time Alan shows up in this movie in the bathroom of the bar mitzvah 
at that point, again, Joy is at least imagining him to have committed suicide. He seems to have melded with Andy. Alan and Andy are the same person at that point. Right, right. Uh, and and maybe not even at that point. Uh, Andy earlier, uh, when he when when he shows up in the restaurant, uh, talks about maybe not at the restaurant. Maybe it's at uh, maybe it's at Helen's house. Uh, Andy talks about reminisces about having given Joy an ashtray with her name on it. Right, right, which, which is, is very clearly the thing that, that yeah, Alan did, right? In allusion so, to what we and, saw and, Alan do at the beginning of the movie. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and, yeah, like, well, and what we kind of, like, get is that, yeah, yeah, absolutely, that they are sort of melding in her mind or, or perhaps, again, like, you know, it, and that's a whole sort of different thing because, again, I feel like that, unfortunately, that is the thing, probably the part of the movie that most made me think, like, yeah, we probably should see happiness to fully grasp what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, just because it feels like um, we're missing con- like context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just from what I've read about happiness, I can't tell what context we might be missing either. So, right. Because yeah, they were definitely absolutely. separate characters in happiness as well. So, um, right, and 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 maybe there's nothing, right? Like, it may, yeah. it's quite possible that like our, you know, that you know, Todd Solon just made a decision that like for her, these two people have become kind of sort of mentally inseparable. Yeah, right. Uh, because since she is clearly uh, having a lot of tr- like problems, right? Like she's currently like undergoing a lot of like uh, mental stress, right? So. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting thing that happens. Like I said, I think that's my the part of the movie I like the most in terms of just sort of character work is just I don't I don't, I don't find the relationship between um, um, Helen and uh, Timmy is is not that interesting. Trish, to me. Trish and Timmy, Timmy's mom. Sorry, Trish. Trish. Yeah. I get confused. It's okay. Uh, Trish, right, yeah. Uh, I kind of zoned out people's names at some point <laughs> during the movie. It was like, well, I, I, this is a movie. Uh, people are doing things. Um, but, yeah, like their relationship is just not that interesting, possibly because in many ways their relationship feels <sighs> borders on sort of the hyperbolic in many ways. Like it's so intense that it feels like a soap opera. Uh-huh. It, it sort of leaves the realm of reality and goes into a sort of different realm uh, that makes it not feel like I should engage with it as intensely. Is yeah. that I don't know if that makes sense, but that is sort of my sort of conception of it. Is like if something gets too melodramatic, I can't. I don't need to take it seriously anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, I also think the way, particularly when they're having the conversation in the kitchen, Trish and Timmy. Uh, after she comes back from her date uh, with Harvey, right. uh, the way the lines are being delivered uh, is over the top. <laughs> it, 
right exactly and that over the topness to me is a sort of way of uh, something telegraphs to me oh you don't need to take these people seriously right 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 um yeah. and so as a result like i kind of can't as the movie goes on it, it doesn't help that like there's something sort of fundamentally ridiculous to everything that happens in their part of the story right yeah um yeah well uh Trish particularly and and the kids as an epitome of suburban masking of of the put on the happy face um, right is is there you know it's not particularly it is particularly dark because her husband is out of the picture because he was a child molester but um and they have that hanging over them. Uh, but most of it is almost John Watersy, Like, the little girl right. who's taking karaoke lessons after school. Like, that's... Right, yeah. It, there's a sort of, sort of surrealness to it all that, right. that makes it not feel like... I feel like I shouldn't take it entirely seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like... And, and, and that's hard to let go of when the movie decides to adopt a more serious tone at times because you're still sort of living in that world with them. Right. Um, yeah. You know, even times where like Helen, Alishidi, uh, her speech about how, how she can't offer advice to joy is a ridiculously self-absorbed speech, you know? Right. And it, and it's meant to feel. You can tell that it's meant to feel comedic, right? Right. Like it, 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 the, it you're being telegraphed, like, yeah. But Ali Sheedy, she's a good actress, and she knows that Helen believes the words she's saying, and she is delivering these lines as if Helen believes the words she's saying, which is good and the right thing to do. Uh, which gives it a gravitas that is at odds with what she's actually saying, which is where the humor comes from. I don't need to explain. Ironic. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't need to explain irony to you, but uh, but yeah. So it's it's just sometimes that sort of dark stuff seems like the movie wants us to seriously engage with it, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, sometimes it's for right. laughs. Uh, and yeah, that's weird. <laughs> that is fine to be weird. I thought. Right. But it is, it is, it's weird in a way that doesn't, like, I don't, and I don't even, like, hate it or anything. It's just, it's weird in a way that, like, isn't necessarily making a clear point to me or anything like that. Right. It's just sort of, just in general weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes back around to what do we think the political point of this obviously political film is? And it's not, not great. <laughs> it's yeah, fine. exactly. It's, it's, it's just not. It, it certainly, certainly could, could be worse. Yeah, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Uh, you know, what this film has to say about the uh, ineffability of forgiveness um, is... Very Jewish, uh, very, uh, 
you know, outright said multiple times that forgiveness doesn't matter. Uh, it won't, it won't change anything, you know? Um, and yet still people offer it or don't offer it. Right. Right. Uh, Billy tells his dad, there's nothing to forgive. And then immediately follows that up with, because what you have done is unforgivable. Right. Right. He uses a phrase that suggests everything's fine in order to pivot into. Right. Right. Absolutely not. Um, you know, when Timmy apologizes to Mark at the end in vague ways, uh, without even naming what he's apologizing for, Mark says, well, I forgive you, but it, not that forgiveness means anything. And that is said by a couple of different people through, <laughs> through the movie too. Uh, and, you know, theologically it's very, a very Jewish stance of, of, uh, God being able to forgive ultimately. Uh, but whatever happens on, on earth is maybe not forgiveness per se, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, one place that's interesting was, uh, then with the actor interviews, and Michael K. Williams, who I did not watch the actor interview, so I will say there's some there's some interesting things in there, um, particularly Michael K. Williams, uh, pertinent here, talking about his own background from an African American Christian uh, tradition, um, where he outright says, you know, certainly things like child molestation happened in his community but you were actively encouraged not to talk about it and no everyone right. just ignored it uh but also talking about forgiveness um and whereas in the movie talking about you know, i think in the conversation with harvey about uh where timmy asks, what if i punched you in the in the face um talking about uh an eye for an eye until that justice is achieved forgiveness can't has no meaning whereas michael k williams is approaching that question from a uh protestant christian point of view uh where uh it's rejecting the eye for an eye and and forgiveness is something that is offered uh radically and and freely um in order to maintain community in many ways uh, right and that is an idea that is often abused within within christianity right too, yes right? absolutely yeah. uh particularly in the sorts of issues that we're talking about already uh yeah that uh forced institutional forgiveness where where victims are not made whole and victims are just made to be silent uh yeah <sighs> which he alludes to <laughs> as happening in his own community right Right. So, uh, the other interesting thing that Michael K. Williams brings up is uh, with uh, Solon's as director, um, and basically all of the actors and the cinematographer who gets a good chunk of our bonus features too, talk about 
Solon's as being a performance first director. Uh-huh. Um, and Solon himself says he's interested in the image, but not interested in actually handling the camera. <laughs> like, yeah, we we find out that he's he's also just a fundamentally very weird dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He in is. that he he's a director, a film director, who. Has absolute fundamental disdain for the mechanical device that is a camera. Right, right. Loves photographers because like, I don't like technology. Yeah, and it's like, right. I I don't even know what to do with you. I don't man. know what like, to I do. I don't. Yeah. Like somehow yeah. went through film school with special dispensation Where he... to not have to touch a camera. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. What? But then, but okay. then toward the end, names three or four. Uh, photographers who are direct inspirations for him right uh yeah despite it's the really fact like, that he does man. he does not want to practice photography <laughs> yeah it's like well, yeah. i just want to uh make films but yeah. not actually make films yeah but they all talk all the actors talk about uh about him being fairly performance first um and and helping the way <laughs> the way uh michael k williams says it is so good uh he uh he says that um that Todd Solons will help you make decisions about how to play the character and then pauses for a second and says I mean he'll help you come to the decision he wants you to make right <laughs> but he also praises Solons and and the writing for uh opening him up emotionally and talks about how during his uh uh during his audition uh they ended up just going for 2 hours and that when he left he had been so uh had so much dredged up uh to be this character that he broke down in tears just on a street corner in LA Paul Rubin similarly talks about uh about uh, Solon's bringing out the best performance in Halishidi, and everybody really talks about that. Uh, but all balanced against, you've got to play the character how, right? The way he how wants Solon's to wants you to play the character, uh, that you have to become the character. Halishidi particularly says that if Solon's felt that she was commenting on the character, he'd shut it down. That if she wasn't just being the character, it wasn't right. Which is a which is a fascinating thing to hear when we when compare with the fact that you and I both felt that many of the performances were like comedic in a sort of like way that sort Detached of attached way dissociates in some ways. Yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, that dissociates you like the audience from the from the character. Yeah. To find out that also at the same time, like Solons is pushing for this like radical like investment in the character is kind yeah. of confusing. Yeah, it is weird. Um, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe that disassociation. Obviously, we're dealing his previous films more directly from what we know of them uh, than ne- maybe necessarily this one. Uh, but maybe they're all as stepped back a little bit as this one is that if we watched happiness or anything else we would not understand why they got nc-17 ratings and why no one no one wanted to distribute them but uh right 
But <sighs> one thing that sequence with Joy walking to the restaurant really struck me with is the uh, the disassociation of living in the suburbs. The, the the mental disassociation, the individualistic, like right, uh, um, and to a certain extent that making the human alien, uh, as Jay Hoberman says, Solens does, uh, is is to actively make us disassociate from the characters themselves, right? Right. To make them weird to us, to make it so we can't fully relate to them uh, because we won't, because Solens wants us to see what he's commenting and wants us to see that there's this dark underbelly to the suburban life um, right. without it being a weird horror movie or even without it being something like uh Mon Uncle, right? The the Hello movie. Right. Um, uh <clears throat> you know. And I don't know, maybe his his quip about Giuliani and the consumerism and the absurdity of that as a as a response to nine eleven. Um maybe if I saw more of that in this movie, it would it would feel right, like it was right. You harder. might, you've, right. It, it's it's really sort of. I think we, you and I, ran into the same problem, which is like he just doesn't go hard enough in yeah. any one direction that you feel like you have a good, firm grasp on what his ideas are and like what he wants to get across to us. It, right. It's and like. I I find that far more upsetting than any of the the quote unquote concepts discussed in the in the movie. It, it it's just sort of I need more, and you know maybe yeah, as you said, like maybe if we saw more, we would we would know more. But hey, we 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 play the hand we're dealt here with this. Right, 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 uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just the fact that we came of age. We were high school juniors on nine eleven, uh, and we have we have ourselves produced work heavily influenced by right by yeah, coming I mean, to terms have, with those ideas. We have lived our right. life mostly in like wartime, as as yeah. said here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and he makes statements about like, well, majority of Americans, you know, he 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 makes a lot of arguments about like, well, I make movies about the suburbs because the majority of Americans live in the suburbs, and I wonder, like, I don't know, I I feel like it's that's a sort of that sort of like self-referentialism is a little bit like, yeah, I I do think he is right to say that there is a a universalization to suburban life in New Jersey being pretty equal to suburban life in Ohio or Iowa. That's probably true. I do agree with that. I, as well. I think that as you've already stated, uh, he is disconnected from people outside of his economic class. <laughs> right. And, and, and my problem is, is that he is assuming 
a thing that is probably hasn't been true for probably about 30 or so years or maybe never was true. It's like even within what we call, quote unquote, suburban America, there's a vast differential on like class characteristics. Yeah. Like he he's adopted in many ways, at least as a sort of core concept, the sort of 1955, 1960 conception of what the suburbs is and represents. Yeah, I might And Yeah. And I, I mean, like, even down to sort of like, in some ways, you know what the, this kind of reminds me of is the swimmer. Okay. Yeah. In the sense that, like, but I think the swimmer is much more true to life because of the time it was made, swimmer is more aware of, like, what the world around it and who it's talking about. Uh huh. Whereas yeah. this struggles to a certain extent because. It doesn't, he still thinks of the suburbs in that way, whereas even the swimmer is more aware of how that's not what the suburbs actually are. Yeah, well, maybe maybe that's just the nature of this being a 9-11 movie. And are we, Are I mean, I think we might still be now too early to have gotten a good 9-11 movie. <laughs> a 9-11 movie that's actually engaging with what I feel like a 9-11 movie should be engaging with. Right. Uh, I've not seen one. <laughs> it's not to say they don't exist, but they might not. Uh, right. And I don't think Todd Solon's made one in 2010. <laughs> um, right, uh, right. Yeah, no, I, I would. I Yes, I think that's true. Yeah, I think you're right. It, I, well, no, I think. I think the problem is is that most of the good 9/11 or at least decent 9/11 movies engage with it in a much more like documentarian sort of style. Yeah, maybe. It, at best, I, I even then I would say I think you're probably still right. I'm not. Yeah. I, it's just that I, like fi- America just cannot. It seems almost impossible for America to come to grips with what right happened post not like. Yeah, or in and around nine eleven, like it's just it might be at its core an impossible task, or needs yeah, as you said, like but the problem is is that it needs more time to get there. But the flip side of that is is the further we get away from it, the further we get away from the ability to like grapple with it honestly. In some ways, I think because. It will. It just becomes more and more mythologized. The ideas of this, even the thing that like Todd Solon says about like people coming together, is essentially nine eleven mythology, right? Right. Like it, it, and and it becomes common knowledge that sort of penetrates into the psyche of society. Like, well, if you made a movie where that's not the case, then like you've even if you are telling a true story or a story that is accurate to what actually happened you're going to be sort of told that you're not telling the truth because that's just commonly held understanding of what happened at this point. Right. Like if you watch any show that like on TV that mentions 9-11, that's just common knowledge that like uh, New Yorkers and Americans around the country came together to help each other out on that fateful day. Yeah. Actually, I will. That's just the mythology of it now. In 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 doing some googling, I think I will amend that. I think I think Spike Lee's Twenty Fifth Hour is actually a good post nine eleven movie. 
I've never and seen it, that. And it and it came out very like like had to change things during production, basically. Um, uh, but yeah, most most post nine eleven movies engage with nine eleven the day, right? And that's not what I desire. That, uh, well, that's also right. not what not in many ways when you and I talk about nine eleven movie, that's yeah, not what not we're what we're talking about, about. Right? Like, right? We're not because, talking about. Yeah, we all remember that day. Yeah. But, like, that's not really the story, right? Like, the story is everything that happened for the next two decades afterwards. Right, right. And, and of course, you know, any story made now obviously exists in that. But, but Solon's, in making a movie called Life During Wartime, is at least suggesting an act of engagement with... The right. I think I think the title is, is part of the problem. The, yeah. the title is really a fundamental key to some of what we're complaining about, because the title sounds like we're talking about really serious, earnest critique of America right. post nine eleven, and, and that's not what this is. And it does seem like maybe, I I kind of said this earlier. I think it does seem like maybe within, uh, Solon's films, uh child molestation pedophilia is a metaphor for how the ruling class treats everybody uh and and viewing <laughs> i know solens isn't doing this because he's actively said things that contradict contradict this but but if he was viewing uh the uh the backdoor draft post nine eleven that we had as a form of child molestation that it was, right? Of of convincing a bunch of seventeen and eighteen year olds to go fight a war. Yeah, just the massive recruitment camp, like just the 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 massive recruitment campaign yeah. that took place, like uh, in and around us, like everywhere. That would be an interesting thing to engage with. Uh, but again, that's not really what he's doing. And even his questions about forgiveness here, any mention of terrorism in Osama bin Laden are faints to the question of forgiveness more than an active engagement with the question of forgiveness around right. that. So, yeah, I don't... <laughs> I didn't dislike this movie. I enjoyed watching it. No, I I didn't either. I mean, I I did but... find it a pleasant experience in many ways. It's just that like it doesn't I don't think necessarily as a film holds up to critical analysis from the perspective that like I feel like it kind of wants us to. Yeah. Like you named the you got you named the film, man. Like basically. Like you told me what it's about and kind of put out the stakes and like you didn't quite meet your own my expectations and so now i've got to kind of evaluate it based on that and yeah i i yeah i agree i think it just it it sort of just doesn't accomplish its what i assume are its goals yeah or what it what it's what its lip service goals at least seem to <laughs> Well, that's what I mean is like, that's what I mean is like what I, 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 like I said, like what I assume are its goals, like based on what it has told me. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would never like, I'm not, 
it's hard to like it's we've kind of run into this sometimes in the past it's like there it's possible for me to be disappointed with certain elements of a movie and still right, right, yeah. think it's pretty good like i would never tell somebody this is a bad movie right like i just don't think it's necessarily lives up to i guess its potential i feel like i'm critiquing it somebody's writing at school now but <laughs> <laughs> right 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 but that's kind of what I feel like, right? Is it like Swords kind of needs that? Yeah. Like it's like you you seem to have told us in your sort of the sort of at its core thesis of the film, like what you were gonna do, and then it doesn't feel like you did that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, other than that, it's fine. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, other than all that. Yeah. Um It actually approaching uh, being a Paul Rubens redemption story is weird <laughs> and and great. Yeah, I had forgotten you had told me that Paul Rubens is in this. Yeah, like I just didn't remember. Oh yeah, yeah. And so yeah. when he showed up, I was like, oh right, I had him. Oh yeah, no, I told. Me I'd that. forgotten that I'd mentioned it too. Actually, I thought that for a minute I thought we were talking. We had talked about Paul Rubens in conjunction with something else. Um, yeah kind of right where you're like yeah. i just i didn't like somehow my brain was like oh yeah i mean yeah i know he's coming up sometime in some movie we're gonna watch but uh. yeah yeah i don't know i there's another when trish is telling joy about harvey and he says she says he did vote for bush and, and mccain uh but only because of israel he realizes those people are complete idiots otherwise uh, that's another time when we get a hint at an actual critique of something that we right, right. Well, that's the thing, right? Is it's always hints, right? Like the problem I, you know, we're running into, and you know, we've kind of talked about multiple times now, is that like Solon seems to be like unwilling to truly like attack yeah. power, like in yeah. a real meaningful, deep way. Trish, Trish and Harvey both saying that they never have visited Israel but want to be buried there. That is something that would be very timely if we had seen a talk about that and the uh the the uh a liberal leaning Jewish American critique of Zionism could be fascinating to see pop up in Well this yeah, movie. I don't think this movie was nowhere near it was not going anywhere within that realm really. Yeah. Like it was more just like it, it's more fits into like it's more in, akin to like um like what we do with like the 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 actor sister and sort of like almost just a comedic element yeah. without really much critique to it at right, all. Right, right. Yeah. It's it's meant to be a joke that they have no connection to the space right. except for the Judaism and feel like they need to be buried there and are excited about the prospect of being buried there, right? Uh right. Yeah. Um Timmy is obviously the tragic core of right right he's our ending um the fact that it's revealed that timmy is the blurred out character in bill's dream and he turns around and he's got the red flower in his hand red for love as harvey has said previously um and then ending with timmy saying explicitly i don't care about this conversation of forgiveness i just want my dad 
And as he says that, his dad, as a ghost for a second, too, walking through the background, fading in and fading back out. Uh, I think that's poignant. I right. wish the movie had more poignancy other than the last five minutes. Um, right, right, yeah. And yeah, Bill's, Bill's conversation with Billy, also poignant. Uh, other than that, leans heavily on dark comedy in a way that doesn't really land as dark or comedic <laughs> often. Right, does yeah, a, exactly. Does, yeah. does often enough, yes. But uh, yeah, I just... Like you said, uh, it feels it feels like it feels like a workshopping critique. But I want this movie to be right. as smart as it seems like it could be. Uh, right, it, and that's yeah. I, that you just kind of run into a brick wall where you're like, man, like and one, and it and it comes off as a sort of, and then like, oh boy, this, this sentence is getting out of my hands. Um, it's the problem that you run into with this sort of well-meaning liberal in general, which is you need to just please just spend a little bit more time thinking about it. Yeah. And getting a little bit deeper into what these things actually mean. Like it's sort of in many ways feels like a lot of sort of surface level critique, right? Yeah. Rather than like deep thought about, society in general and the way that it works and things yeah. like that. Um, well, switching gears for the last little bit, and we don't need to talk a lot about this, but uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, particularly knowing that you didn't watch them. Uh, three of the bonus features, fully half of the bonus features on this disc are uh, associated with Ed Blackman, the director of photography. Uh, right, yeah, I I wanted to watch this and ran out. That that was something I was actually interested in, and just sort of ran out of time to do. There's three. One is him doing selected scene commentary, uh, and there's some interesting stuff in there. One is him answering some questions, and that I watched last, and it was sort of rehash of stuff I'd already seen. Uh, and then the the very interesting one to me is, uh, I guess, an interview with him, uh, but presented just him talking about. The movie and and the process of making the movie, uh, and this movie was shot on a red camera, which we talked about extensively uh, a few months ago with Che, uh, which was shot on the red camera. Um, right. This was Lockman's first chance to shoot with a red. He said everyone was very excited about it, him notwithstanding. Uh, he spends a good five minutes <laughs> explaining critiques of the red. <laughs> Which is not something we got with with the uh right uh with the Che uh bonus features dedicated to the red, uh which were more like advertisements for it. Uh right, yes. And mostly presented by people who worked for red, um, if I remember correctly. Not by not by the cinematographers of the movie, but by I see that the funny thing about that is I, I had forgotten that we went through that process <laughs> yeah. the other day and like I remember when the red camera came out yeah and like there were there were a lot of those kinds of things oh yeah like oh definitely it was such a big fucking deal yeah so uh, so it's kind of funny to think about that uh so lockman basically boils down to all of his complaints about it aren't 
he says aren't pejorative um but just recognizing that shooting digitally is a different animal and a different world than shooting on film uh but he points out that the the red's viewfinder is itself a tiny monitor and that tiny monitor does not have the same resolution as what the camera is shooting so you're not you're not seeing a true picture of what you're recording um right that uh the red is balanced to daylight instead of to tungsten lighting like traditional film cameras are, uh, which means shooting in tungsten lighting is very different to. Well, yeah, you're going to have to, uh, yeah, you're going to have to redo the, the white balance on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then talks about the, the lack of extremes between light and shadow, uh, and the restriction in, uh, three-dimensionality to the film um he wraps it's a bit more philosophical than i think actually physical about the uh the silver grains and the three layers of color giving film actual physical depth that digital centers do not have i mean though i have heard i have like you know, I, I have never taken the time to invest in it. But like, yeah. even within like still photography, there's a there is a fairly large community of people because this is it is not a thing an people say. Thing. I don't know if it's a thing I believe. And I don't know about I the guess. depth, yeah. but certainly like the the it's sort of like it having its own sort of special characteristics. There, I, like one of the argument that can be that gets made in many ways is like comes from part of the fact that like there's sort of a reason why like every film camera and every phone attempts to duplicate sort of camera aesthetics. Right, right, right. Because, like, the digital version just tends to be very cold. And I think that, interestingly enough, has happened as well. One of the problems you run into with the digital is that, like, now we've, we've gone through so many iterations of, like, formats that have gotten bigger and better that, like, films shot on, like, early digital film cameras are already at sort of peak resolution. They can't be bigger. Whereas of course, as we've, you know, as is known, right? Like you can blow that fucking film. I mean, you, it'll get grainier. Right. In some ways, right? Because you will get to see those silver grains depending on like what kind of light it was shot in or whatever. But you will get, you have essentially infinite scalability. Whereas, you know, those early digital films, we all know what a, a scaled up digital image looks like. It's right, just right, interesting. Right. Like I, I've just heard a lot of, you know, the move was made and has been made and essentially is done. But a lot of people are on the same boat as him. Yeah. In terms of like kind of like, ah, this was maybe not always the best thing in the world. He again, he talks about it not to say it shouldn't exist, but just to say that we have to recognize that it is a different thing and has its own limitations. And its own right. benefits. Uh, you can right. shoot absolutely. You can shoot a lot more footage digitally uh, because you don't well, have I mean, to worry yeah, about there, wasting there, money. A, there were and there was always a lot of like when you know we saw this with the the last one where we that we watched that had some stuff about this in it, like just the ability to like instantly see yeah the results of your work is like you know it's it's really meaningful, right? There's a reason why people in general took to digital cameras for still photos. And then followed by phones, and nobody, most people didn't look back because, like, 
oh, you can take the photo and immediately know whether or not you fucked it up or not. Uh, that's really helpful. Uh, yeah. So be, people, you know, and that's it's helpful for normal people. It's helpful for, you know, on filmmaking. It's it's helpful to be able to like see your work. Absolutely. And, and determine if you did a good job or not. Yeah. So it was it was given that our last special feature dedicated to the red was essentially a sales call. Uh it was it was right. nice to, nice to get someone talking about it from a more uh a more even keeled uh, uh critique uh and back right. and forth. You know, actually comparing it to film and letting us know when when it did not pay, compare favorably to film. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think we probably pull this one to a close then. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting little movie. Uh, definitely not what it could have been in our opinion, but hey, it's the movie we got. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all, you know, in the end, right? Like we got yeah. what we, we, it is what it is. Right. Yeah. And like, we have to take it as it is. Todd Solon's Life During Wartime uh, from 2010. Next week, uh, we'll be talking about The Killing, one of Stanley Kubrick's early films from 1956. And also on that uh, on that disc is Killing Kiss, another of his early works from 1955. A couple of Kubrick's coming at us, so that's exciting. Look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criteria. I'm, as always, Lee Adam Glass. With me, as always, Sean Patrick Owatari-Dory. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. been listening to Lost in Criterion with co-hosts Lee Adam Glass and John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. With the collapse of Twitter, who knows what social media we might end up at. How about Blue Sky? That sounds great. Check out the official podcast account at lostincriterion.bsky.social. Jonathan Hape does our music, and you can check out more of his work at jonathan-hape.com or on any music streaming service. And you probably should. It's pretty good. A big thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. And hey, thank you for listening. <laughs>